Welcome back to Queer as a $5 Bill, the podcast. I'm Lee Wind, the author and your host. This is bonus episode 36, a sneak peek at the introduction from The Gender Binary is a Big Lie, Infinite Identities Around the World. If you're just joining us now, you can start at the beginning with podcast episode one. Content advisory, The Gender Binary is a Big Lie, is intended for listeners and readers age 11 and up. You'll hear some other voices throughout, and that's to let you know that those words are primary sources, coming to you directly from the historical and contemporary people themselves, though played by actors. The rest will be narrated by me. Ready? Here we go. The Gender Binary is a Big Lie, Infinite Identities Around the World, by Lee Wind, read by the author. Before we start... The false idea that gender is a binary affects every one of us, regardless of whether we fit or are perceived to fit, in one of the two boxes dominant culture tells us are our choices. How did the idea of gender get so limited? What do more expansive definitions of gender look like? Who are the societies that understand and define gender with many more options? Where and when have individual people lived outside the boundaries of gender? I write this as a cis gay man, short for cisgender, meaning my internal sense of gender and my physical body match. A child of immigrants, a husband, a father, a Jew, a spiritual atheist, a vegetarian, and an ally to all the other groups represented by the queer community's LGBTQIA2 acronym, as well as to women and people of color and indigenous people and disabled people and everyone who's under-resourced, under-respected, and undervalued. Like every author, I'm a very specific person. I don't know that I'm the perfect person to write this book, but I do know it's the book that demanded to be written. Because the gender binary is indeed a big lie. And it turns out breaking that mental model is a liberation for us all. Introduction. How many colors are in a rainbow? Even though we can be pretty sure that rainbows in the sky haven't changed physically since our most distant ancestors first saw them, the answer is, it depends. On what? On where and when you are. Ask a bunch of kids in 21st century America, the years 2001 to 2100, and you'll hear that rainbows in the sky have seven colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Go back in time more than 2,350 years to Aristotle, the famous philosopher and scientist in ancient Greece, and he taught that a rainbow is three-colored, red, green, and purple. But admitted that sometimes there were four. Between the red and the green, an orange color is often seen. Early Islamic scholars said they saw three colors. Not Aristotle's three. They saw red, green, and yellow. Ancient Chinese scientists and philosophers saw five colors. So did Isaac Newton. Red, yellow, green, blue, and violet. Sir Isaac Newton is maybe most famous for the legend of getting bonked on the head by an apple, which helped him develop the law of universal gravitation, what we call gravity. Until around 1665 CE, when Isaac got the idea to connect the colors in the rainbow to notes on a Western musical scale, adding orange and indigo. That got us to a consensus among European scientists, inherited by those of us in the United States and the West, that there are seven colors. 
Modern science tells us that for most humans, there are about one million distinct colors in the visible spectrum of light, including those bending out of water droplets to create a rainbow. Most humans have three types of cones, the cells in the eye that detect color. People whose eyes have two types are often called colorblind, and those whose eyes have four types can see extra colors, 100 million separate colors. But a rainbow in the sky doesn't have its colors separated by coloring book lines. As Dr. Ethan Siegel explained, quote, the gradation of color in a rainbow is continuous. There are no stripes. Humans, however, like to organize things, including colors, to make sense of them, end quote. This means it is our expectations, what we have been trained to see, that guides our brains to organize those hundreds of thousands of hues into distinct bands of color when we see a rainbow. The same can be said of gender. Gender is an idea held by a group of people. Some, but not all, societies teach that gender is a binary. The idea that there are only two possible options that matches a person's physical body. People who have male bodies are men, and people who have female bodies are women, which results in public buildings generally having two kinds of bathrooms. There are girl things and boy things, and babies are dressed in pink or blue, depending on what's under their diapers. But many societies had, and still have, very different ideas about gender. Boogie. The Boogie people of southern Sulawesi, Indonesia, recognize and honor three physical sexes, male, female, and intersex, and five genders, men, women, kalabai, kalalai, and bisu. As reported on the PBS map of gender-diverse cultures, quote, kalabai are biological males who embody a feminine gender identity. Kalalai are biological females who embody a male gender identity. Bisu are considered a transcendent gender, either encompassing all genders or none at all. The Bisu serve ritual roles in Bugi culture and are sometimes equated with priests. In a 2002 article for the International Institute for Asian Studies, Sharon Graham writes about the wedding mother role many Kalabai play in Bugi culture. Sharon also describes a Kalalai member of the Boogie people, Rani. As Sharon recounts, quote, Rani works alongside men as a blacksmith, shaping kris, small blades, and other knives, wears men's clothing, and ties her, H-I-R, her, in italics, is the pronoun used for Rani by Sharon, sarong in the fashion of men. Rani also lives with her wife and their adopted child. While Rani works with men, dresses as a man, smokes cigarettes, and walks alone at night, activities women are not encouraged to participate in, Rani has a female body and is therefore not considered a man. Rani does not wish to become a man. Rani is Kalalai, end quote. Sharon explains that Bisu present themselves in ways that combine feminine and masculine, quote, a Bisu may carry a man's body, knife, but wears flowers in her, his, her, hair like a woman. Bisu are also seen to combine human and spirit elements as people, quote, who can be and often are possessed by spirits in order to confer blessings, end quote. As Bisu high priest Poang Matoa explained to a National Geographic documentary crew, There are five genders, and we don't need to separate people based on their gender because everything must live in harmony. If one of the genders is separated, then the world would become unbalanced. For boogie people in the past and still today, there is no gender binary. What if we look back in history, really far back, like nearly 5,000 years ago? Neolithic Age Evidence 7,000 miles from Indonesia, 
archaeologists working in a suburb of Prague in the Czech Republic made a discovery in 2011. They were excavating grave sites that dated back to 2800 BCE. People of that time, of that culture, courted where, had very specific and different burial rites for men compared to women. Men were buried on their right side, with their heads pointing west. They would have weapons and flint knives buried with them. Women would be buried on their left side, with their heads pointing east. They would have necklaces, earrings, and be buried with jugs and a pot shaped like an egg near their feet. At a press conference, archaeologists explained that they had unearthed a skeleton of someone whose body was male, who had been buried mostly in the way women were traditionally buried, on their left side, but with their head facing west. And while they weren't buried with weapons, there were jugs in the gravesite with them, including a pot shaped like an egg near their feet. Archaeologist Katerina Semradova was quoted as saying, quote, We believe this is one of the earliest cases of what could be described as a transsexual, today we'd say transgender, or third gender grave in the Czech Republic, end quote. News reports spoke of the discovery of a gay caveman. That's wrong on both counts. We have no idea if this person was gay. We don't know who or if they romantically loved anyone or how they identified. And cavemen were about 15,000 years earlier. But it does seem clear that in that society nearly 5,000 years ago, this life outside the gender binary was lived and honored. Reading between the lines. One of the main challenges we face when looking at the history of gender diversity across the globe is that the recording was often done by people outside of those communities. A false belief of European colonialism that started around the 1500s was that the other people and societies the colonists encountered were on a progressive journey to modernize and eventually catch up to the colonists' culture. The colonists believed they were advanced, civilized, and more worthy than everyone else they met on their expeditions. This let them rationalize terrible practices like slavery, stealing land, and even genocide, because the people they were doing these things to were seen as backwards and less than themselves. Historian Will Roscoe noted 157 indigenous societies in North America whose members include people with male bodies who dress as women and perform many of the tasks generally done by women, sometimes referred to as a third gender role and identity and people with female bodies who dress as men and perform many of the tasks generally done by men, sometimes referred to as a fourth gender role and identity. Some third gender and fourth gender native people, as well as other queer identified indigenous people in North America, use the term two-spirit for themselves. That's where we get the two, sometimes rendered as 2S, in the LGBTQIA2 acronym. You can learn more about gender being non-binary in many North American native nations in the Waywa chapter of No Way They Were Gay. But to see the truth of other genders in history, sometimes we have to interpret hostile primary sources and read between the lines. Here's a powerful example from the 1700s when people from the Spanish missions encountered different genders in indigenous societies living inside the boundaries of what would eventually be called California in the United States. While recording these differences, the author of this primary source also reveals how the colonists worked to destroy these age-old cultural practices. Francisco Palo's Life and Apostolic Labors of the Venerable Father Unipero Serra, founder of the Franciscan Missions of California, at Mission Santa Clara, 1777. The father missionaries of the mission noticed that among the Gentile women, 
Gentile was the word used to identify people from outside the faith. In the 1970s and 80s Philadelphia suburbs where I grew up, it was used by members of my Jewish community to speak of non-Jews. Who always worked separately and without mixing with the men. There was one who, by the dress which was decorously worn and by the heathen. Heathen is another religious coded word. More negatively charged, this reveals the colonial belief that those with different and thus wrong spiritual beliefs needed to be saved and converted to the same religion as the colonists. Headdress and ornaments displayed, as well as in the manner of working, of sitting, etc., had all the appearances of a woman, but judging by the face and the absence of breasts, though old enough for that, they concluded he must be a man, so they asked some of the converts. They said that it was a man, but that he passed himself off always for a woman, and always went with them and not with the men, and that it was not good that he should be found there. There are two ways to read this. The first, not good that this third gender person be found there with the women, is a judgment, siding with the missionary colonists against the traditional acceptance of this third gender role in their native society. The second, not good that this third gender person be found there with the men, speaks to their acceptance of this different gender role in their community. As the fathers judged there was some trickery about it, they decided to investigate. This the corporal did, and on taking off his aprons, they found that he was more ashamed than if he really had been a woman. After he had been warned that it was not right for him to go about dressed as a woman, and much less thrust himself in with them, as it was presumed that he was sinning with them, they let him go. Sidebar. Trans-exclusionary radical feminists, TERFs, make the same mistake. It's revealing that the only interpretation the missionaries had as to why this person with the body they saw as male would be hanging out with the women would be to physically take advantage of those women. It didn't occur to them that the person in question knew their authentic identity, their true gender, in a way that transcended their body's physical characteristics. The same mistake is made today with TERFs and some lawmakers falsely accusing trans women of wanting access to women's bathrooms to take advantage of women. Trans women generally want access to bathrooms for the same reason you and I do, to use the bathroom. The people who are really in danger when they have to use a public bathroom are trans people, who, as the National Center for Transgender Equality reports, face extraordinary levels of violence. End sidebar. He immediately left the mission and never came back to it, but from the converts, it was learned that he was still in the villages of the Gentiles and going about as before, dressed as a woman. I'd get out of there too, wouldn't you if you were told you couldn't be yourself? And still, how interesting that this third gender native person didn't stop being their authentic self. They just went somewhere safer. But it was impossible to find out what the reason for it was. In the same hostile primary source, the colonists think they figured out the reason. They report from Mission San Antonio in Monterey County, where they explain how a father missionary with soldiers entered a house and interrupted the private time of an indigenous couple who the missionaries perceived as two men. The report continues, saying the colonists punished them both, though not as severely as they deserved. The bias of the author comes through loud and clear and tried to show them what an ugly sin they were committing. 
The Gentile replied that the other man was his koya, or his wife, showing how normative and accepted their relationship was in their society. After the punishment they received, they were not seen again in the mission, nor in any place nearby, nor have any such execrable people been found since in any of the missions. Knowing how the missionaries saw and treated third gender people and their spouses, it's not surprising they would keep their distance from the missions. Only they say that in the stretch of land along the channel of Santa Barbara, the Santa Barbara Channel starts just north of Malibu at Point Magoo and extends northwest over a hundred miles to Point Conception. There are to be found many koyas, and that it is rarely you can find a village where there are not two or three. Every village had two or three of these third-gender people living among them, accepted and part of their communities. But we trust in God that as the country is gradually being filled with the missions, these detestable people will be eradicated and that this most abominable of vices will be exterminated and in its stead will be planted the Catholic faith and with it all the virtues for the greater glory of God and for the better welfare of these poor degraded people. It's tragic and horrible that the colonists saw these people who seemed so different and called them detestable, abominable. And in the name of the missionaries' God and religion, they set out to eradicate and exterminate not just this gender role, but also the people who lived it. It's one painful piece of the colonization of the United States by Europeans that displaced indigenous people and nations with violence, land seizures, and cultural suppression. These many injustices continue to resonate and impact Native people and nations today. As hard as it is to read the hostile primary source above, it's also amazing proof that nearly every village of indigenous people these colonists encountered in an area that spanned over a hundred miles included multiple people living these third gender roles. It shows us how European colonists imposed the gender binary onto the indigenous people and nations of Turtle Island. Turtle Island is the name some indigenous people use for North America. And it's not just historical. Geo-Neptune is a Passamaquoddy two-spirit artist and activist who reminds us that two-spirit people and identities are a vibrant part of Native nations and societies today. Gender across time. So in traveling throughout time and around our world, we see that gender is diverse and much more than a simple binary. As a social construct, something that society has taught us, like the colors we see in a rainbow, gender is also a moving target which means that gender for you, in your family, in your culture, may be different than it was for your elders when they were your age, and for their elders before them. Even little things like the colors blue and pink have been coded with gender meaning, but not always in the way you might expect. Over a hundred years ago in the U.S., pink was the recommended color for boys. Advice in a June 1918 Earnshaw's Infants Department magazine read, the generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. Why is this so important? Because many of us have been lied to all this time. It's like being taught that there are only two colors in a rainbow, 
So when you look at one in the sky, that's all you think you see. When the Viking Age, between about 800 to 1066 CE, grave labeled BJ581 of a warrior was discovered in the late 1880s, and the skeleton was surrounded by a sword, an axe, a spear, armor-piercing arrows, a battle knife, two shields, and two horses, one mare and one stallion, along with a full set of gaming pieces that indicates knowledge of tactics and strategy. It was seen as the complete equipment of a professional warrior, a high-ranking officer. The archaeologists of the time just assumed the warrior had been a man. It wasn't until 2014 that scientists reported their study of the bones actually suggested the warrior had a female body. Another study published in 2019 in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology used DNA from the warrior's teeth and bones to confirm that their physical body had been female. The article was titled, A Female Viking Warrior Confirmed by Genomics. Even though there had been stories of battle-tested and victorious female Viking warriors since the Middle Ages, in the 1880s, the idea of real female warriors in history was seen as nothing more than myth. The male archaeologists just applied their own gender lens to the past, and it took 125 years for us to see the warrior buried in BJ581 more clearly, and we still don't know how that Viking warrior understood their gender. When someone's gender is unclear or unknown, I'll use the gender-neutral they pronoun to show respect. Going directly to the primary sources can help us see beyond the binary and uncover our historical legacy and today's reality of the many ways we humans define, honor, and live gender. Why? Because knowing gender is not binary can change lives and our world for the better, starting right now. This isn't the whole story. Often books that talk about history, societies, and culture for young people are prescriptive, as if there's only one way things work and everything you'll ever need to know about that topic is inside. That's not what this book is. Don't think of it as an encyclopedia of gender, but as a taste, a preview. I hope you'll get excited about what we discover together and then dig in on your own. Find new histories and stories about gender that inspire you. There are so many primary sources to explore, so many people living their authentic gender expansively, and so many societies that celebrate a multiplicity of gender roles and identities beyond the binary. Our gender-diverse history and world is out there, waiting for you and for us all. That was bonus episode 36 of Queer as a $5 Bill, the podcast, a sneak peek at the introduction of the nonfiction book for readers age 11 and up, The Gender Binary is a Big Lie, from Zest Books Learner Publishing Group, written and narrated by me, Lee Wind. Primary source material performed by Jim Cartwright as Aristotle, Laurie Snyder as Bisu High Priest Poang Matoa, Joe Malika as Francisco Paolo, and Eric Vincent as the voice of Earnshaw's Infants Department magazine. Text excerpts from The Gender Binary is a Big Lie, copyright 2024, used with permission of Zest Books, a division of Learner Publishing Group, Inc. All rights reserved. I write and produce this podcast, our theme music is by Doug Pettibone, and our creative consultant is Matthew Winner. One final thought. Now that you know a few queer secrets from history that could change the world, don't keep them or this podcast a secret. We appreciate you listening.